0: This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. This was really useful for me. I used to, I call 3 in the morning the the witching hour because I would wake up at 3 in the morning and whatever it is I could be potentially stressed about, I would be massively anxious and stressed at 3 in the morning. And so finally I started telling myself, look, this has been happening all my life and so I'll do exactly what you just said. I'll say, I'm going to... I promise I will think about this at three in the afternoon instead yeah. when I'm a little bit more lucid. And usually it was nothing to worry about.
1: Right, right. Every time I talk to you, I always use like all these strategies that we use in therapy. And then I always find out that you've actually figured a lot of them out on your own and that you've incorporated them somehow into your life. And Probably
0: through therapy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but they, And then you were able to say, yeah, that actually works. But
0: it's a survival technique because it's really... It's really hard to live. Right. I mean, life is constantly putting obstacles in front of you, and simply avoiding obstacles will help you succeed and feel better about yourself. And I tend to positively or negatively take things to extremes. And when it's negative, I have to avoid those extremes or, or damage myself. So I have to come up with these strategies.
1: Right. And I think that that's so important. And Some people just don't recognize that they get caught up in that and struggle to break free of it.
0: So... Now we're going to take it positive. Here are the 10 mental strength exercises that will make you stronger. So I want to know what they are. I want to make myself mentally stronger.
1: All right. Yeah, drives people nuts that my books are about what not to do. So many people say, just tell us what to do. And of course, what you do is important.
0: So this was uh, five ways to simplify your life so you can make room for things that matter most. Uh, And I think, uh, do you have time to keep going? Sure, sure. So, because I want to do 10 mental strength exercises that will make you stronger. This could be like a, a, a part two. So, so, let's talk about this because I actually don't know what your mental strength exercises are. Uh, your, your book are things mentally strong people don't do. And, uh, you know, in there, there's obviously things you should do, but let's now we're going to take it positive. Here are the 10 mental strength exercises that will make you stronger. Stronger. So I want to know what they are. I want to. I want to make myself mentally stronger.
1: All right. Yeah, it drives people nuts that my books are about what not to do. So so many people say, just tell us what to do. And of course, what you do is important.
0: Um, And by the way, I think you know, it's. I actually like the way you title it because then it's so easy to see. see, Oh well, I do that. I should stop doing that. Whereas ten things that will make you stronger, I could also say, well, I do that but you don't really know the extent to which you do it so you might think oh i'm already yes. mentally strong so i don't need to do anything but like for instance your your first thing that makes you not strong is don't feel sorry for yourself even a little bit of feelings you're sorry for yourself you can now recognize is okay this is a negative i have to i have to zero this yes and whereas it's hard to know how much of these mental strength exercises that will make you stronger you should do even if you recognize that you do some of them so anyway let's let's get to this because What's important about this is I think I'm smart. That's my general inclination, but I realize for most areas of life, I am a complete idiot. And I'm probably, you know, and this has been my main, you know, the main way I failed at things is assuming I'm smart at one thing, but then uh, mean, having that mean I'm smart at everything. Like that's been my weakest point is kind of an arrogance about intelligence. So I actually, I think I'm stupid in most things. So I really do want to have these mental strength exercises that make me stronger. Okay, then. So, so what's number one?
1: Uh, you know, so if we divided him up about mental strength, so it's about thinking, feeling, and behaving. So if we started with a couple of thinking exercises, change the way that you think. Um, there's tons of cognitive distortions, thinking errors, but the easiest way to remember it is the acronym BLUE, which is the B is blaming myself, looking for the bad news, unhappy guessing, or exaggeratedly negative. And huh. you change it, replace it with the true thoughts. We all have these blue thoughts sometimes. Um, so
0: B is blaming.
1: Yep, L, L is looking for the bad news.
0: Looking for the bad news. Um, so so what's an example? Like
1: so, if somebody said, "How was your day?" Nine good things happened, but you only talk about the one bad thing that happened.
0: Yeah, and you ever encounter people like that where yeah. it's just always bad? Like they're always. Complaining, and it's as if nothing good has ever happened to them.
1: I have a, a, f- a couple friends, and when I like they went on a vacation, and I say, "How was your vacation?" The wife goes through the list of you know the plane was late and all of these bad things that happened. The husband's version of their vacation is completely different. You know, he tells you all the great things that happened on the trip. But I think it's important to recognize if you tend to be somebody that's always looking for the bad news, than to be purposeful about saying, well, what's the good news?
0: And and the you is
1: unhappy guessing. So that means, you know, gosh, that's gonna go terrible tomorrow. I'm gonna fail. Nothing good's gonna happen when you're predicting something bad is gonna happen. And maybe you don't have the proof of it.
0: But I think I think that I I that was my biggest issue was that I would kind of um, I would look at my bank account and I would assume Gosh, I'm never going to make any money again, and I'm not going to be able to support my family. And even though I had no reason to believe that, I would just automatically go to that most pessimistic point. Yep. And I and it was almost like I was trying to be smart, like like risk averse. So oh, I need to uh, prevent this from happening. But I would get so depressed first and so anxious right. that ultimately, and this is this is like ten years ago. Ultimately. I got seriously addicted to anti-anxiety medication because I, I could not, literally, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't sleep. I would be just adding up numbers all the time, and it was just completely irrational. Nothing I had ever predicted that would happen to me ever actually happened, like zero.
1: And it's, yeah, I think so many people get stuck in that, though, right, of just thinking, you know, all this bad stuff's going to happen and you waste all of your time and energy, and it's hard to... To get unstuck and to flip the switch.
0: Right. And so so what's E?
1: E is exaggeratedly negative. So maybe your Which boss Which is related to this. Right. Maybe your boss calls you into the office and says, We have a problem, but then you automatically start thinking, I'm gonna get fired, my life is over, my career is ending, and you just exaggerate how bad something is.
0: Yeah. And so so this feels like something I sh- one shouldn't do. How's what's what's the positive? What's the what's the mental exercise? So
1: when you recognize those blue thoughts to ask yourself, to first just recognize the guy as a blue thought or a true thought and then replace it with something that's more true. So to know, okay, if... Um would somebody else think the same way? Is there something more realistic I can say? So if you say, I'm terrible, I'm, this is never going to work out, well, what's something more realistic? Well, if I try hard maybe and I do my best, maybe I can make this happen. But just come up with a sentence that's a little bit more realistic. It doesn't have to be exaggeratedly positive either. You don't have to go into something being overconfident, but to just figure out what's a, what's realistic. And So
0: what's a spe- specific example?
1: So if you say, um, you know, my, um, I'm... I'm never going to make any money again. My life is over. Then you recognize, okay, that's a blue thought, and it probably falls into a couple of categories, unhappy guessing, exaggeratedly negative. So then you think, all right, well, how realistic is that? Probably not so much. What could I do about it? How could I make money? Is there a chance I'll do something different? Um, What's the evidence that this is true? What's the evidence it's not true? And when you look at it from that standpoint, then you come up with a sentence that says, all right. Um, I can still make money. There's a lot of ways I could do it, and I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I have options. See if you can come up with something that's a little bit more realistic and reframe it. And you can't necessarily control all those automatic thoughts that pop in your head, but you can control how you respond to them.
0: Right, so so let me, let me put it in in two different ways, what you just said. One is from when we were talking about your your article about simplification, um, measurement, measurement. So one thing, I think my daughter has inherited my blue tendencies, and so she always tells me, like, you know, oh, no, I'm going to, if I don't do this homework, I'm going to fail this class. And I always tell her, every time you make a prediction, why don't you write it down? Yep. And then we could just check later to see how many predictions come true, because none of them come true. And I tend to do this for myself. If I make a prediction about something, I try to write it down, and nothing ever comes true. So measurement to know your the accuracy of your blue thoughts is is useful because then that helps wean you from the the blue thoughts. Right. And then the other thing is when you just said options, I think diversification. So usually that's used in an investment context to avoid risk, but I find it useful if some if one part of my life is not going. So well, I try to then switch at least temporarily to thinking about a part of my life that is going well. So let's say, uh, I don't know, a relationship situation is not going so well, or let's say I lose money, I might switch to um, I'll call a friend where that's going well, or I'll uh, uh, write a story, or write a book, or do something that, you know, or focus on, you know, some area of my life that is doing well. And so making sure I have. A diversification of things that are important to me that's always useful for me
1: definitely and I think uh, you know just to to recognize okay I'm getting stuck in this pattern what do you do to to break out of that pattern and having something else going on and like we said before whether you explore a passion or you do something else but focus on something different for a while which is actually another one of the exercises
0: okay so let's do number two
1: Uh, change the channel which is when you recognize all right, you're to take a look at whether you're problem solving or you're ruminating So when you are working on a problem and you're coming up with a solution, that could be helpful to keep thinking about it. But when you're ruminating, you're just rehashing something, you're playing this conversation in your head over and over, or you're worried about the future that things are going to be terrible and awful, that's not helpful. So uh, we call it change the channel. So then what do you do? You figure out how do you stop thinking about it. Well, if you tell yourself stop thinking about it, you'll think about it more. Studies will prove that over and over. So you have to sometimes physically do something different to, to get your mind off of it. But it's really the key is to say, how do you, how do you recognize when you're ruminating and then how do you get unstuck? So uh, I'll do this in my therapy office as an exercise where I'll tell people, you know, think about white bears for 30 seconds. And then the next 30 seconds, I say, think about anything you want, but don't think about white bears. And then I say, okay, now the next 30 seconds uh, I want you to write the alphabet with your opposite hand. And then I say, okay, well in the first 30 seconds when I told you to think about white bears, how much did you think about white bears? And you say, oh, a lot. Okay, great. Well then when I said don't think about white bears, how much did you think about white bears? Well, a medium amount. I was thinking about something and a white bear popped into my head. Okay, what about when I told you to write the alphabet with your non-dominant hand? And they'll say, well, I didn't think about it at all. And I'll say, right, that's because you changed the channel. So. When you're at home and you are, find yourself ruminating on something, figure out what to do to change the channel. Don't just sit there and think. It might be that you decide to do a, a chore around the house or you call somebody and talk about something different, but don't get stuck thinking about something when it's not helpful.
0: So let's let's take an extreme example. There's a couple of examples I want to go through. Let's take an extreme example. Let's say you've just been diagnosed with late-stage cancer. Mm-hmm. and Or let's say even, even more uncertainty. Let's add, throw some uncertainty in, into it. Let's say the doctor calls you after some tests and says uh we want you to come in. We think there's some major problems. I don't really want to say over the phone <laughs> what they are. Um but you know and, and then you say just tell me. Is it is it late stage? And the doctor says I think you should just come in and we'll we'll talk about it. Uh come in and I have an appointment. Uh, we'll set up an appointment for 2 weeks from now. So there's there's a tendency to just take it to the worst case for the next right. two weeks. And that's all you think about is I'm going to die in two weeks. Um, uh, what, what should that
1: person do? You know, I think to uh, figure out, okay, uh, yes, maybe it is the worst case scenario. That Actually brings us to the next one, which is argue the opposite. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe the news you're predicting isn't going to be what it is. And then to figure out, is there anything I can do about it? Well, if my appointment's two weeks away... Probably nothing I can really do about it in the meantime. So then, when you catch yourself dwelling on this is awful, and you're imagining okay, worst case scenarios, then to just say I'm going to change the channel, I'm not going to sit around and think about this because I don't even have enough information yet to for it to be helpful.
0: Right. I think that I think there's there's a couple things there. You said they're really important. You don't have enough information yet, so that's really important that you can't. And again, since we know that most predictions are wrong. Right. Uh, even from people who are who have all the information most predictions are wrong so if you have if you don't have enough information certainly your prediction is likely to be wrong and the don't dwelling on it i want to pick that apart let's say i'm dwelling on something and i then i and then i say to myself but amy said don't dwell on it and then i could say to myself but this is really important how am i not going to dwell on it
1: so yeah I think a lot of times we tend to think that like thinking about it is somehow going to fix it or that and so Mm. I think it comes down to asking yourself is this helpful am I coming up with a solution or am I just dwelling on the problem and dwelling on how uncomfortable I feel because that's not helpful even if you're problem solving if you're trying to figure out how to solve a problem sometimes when you think about it too much you just it's hard to to come up with a solution and so studies will show you should go do something else for a while that's why sometimes you know when you go to bed at night and you sleep on it. In the morning, you have a fresh perspective where you come up with an idea in the shower when you weren't thinking about it. Because sometimes you just you it's, it's so much when you're dwelling on it. It's just so hard to, to be able to see your way through the problem. And so that's actually another one of my exercises to say, I'm going to schedule time to worry. So you say, I'm going to worry about this problem for 15 minutes today. And you set that 15 minutes aside and worry until your heart's content. And then you get up and go do something else. And if you think about it outside of that time, go back to, okay, I'm this isn't time to worry. I'm going to do that later, and people will just write it in their calendar. I'm going to worry from seven to seven fifteen tonight, and people who are worry warts find that that's helpful, so that they aren't worrying twenty four hours out of the day. They can just contain it to a certain amount of time.
0: Yeah, I uh, uh, this was really useful for me. I used to I call three in the morning the, the witching hour because I would wake up at three in the morning, and whatever it is I could be potentially stressed about, I would be massively anxious and stressed at three in the morning. And so finally, I started telling myself, "Look, this has been happening all my life. Where I wake up at three in the morning, stressed about something, and my, irrationally stressed. And so I'll I'll do exactly what you just said. I'll say I'm gonna. I promise I will think about this at three in the afternoon instead. Yeah. When I'm a little bit more lucid and I need and and slept. And finally, I was able to convince myself that to go back to sleep and 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 I I would I really would obey my promise and and think about it at three in the afternoon. and usually it was nothing to worry about.
1: right, right. Every time I talk to you, I always do the, like all these strategies that we use in therapy, and then I always find out that you you've actually figured a lot of them out on your own and that you've incorporated them somehow into your life, and probably like, through therapy. <laughs> but they and then you were able to say, yeah, that actually works. But
0: it's a survival technique because it's really it's really hard to live.
1: <laughs> right. I mean,
0: life wants to, you know, it's a hundred percent chance that we're going to die and life is constantly putting obstacles in front of you. And if you want to, I don't even want to say succeed, but simply avoiding obstacles will help you succeed and feel better about yourself. There's all these strategies you have to eventually learn or put in place. And, and I tend to positively or negatively take things to extremes. And when it's negative, I have to avoid those extremes or, or damage myself. So I have to come up with these strategies.
1: Right, and I think that that's so important. and Some people just don't recognize that they get caught up in that and struggle to break free of it.
0: So what's uh, what's number four?
1: Um, so then that one would be ask yourself what you'd say to a friend, right, when you're wrestling mm. with something. Oh, should I take this job? Should I start this business? It's so hard to, to come up with a solution because we there's all this emotion involved. So you just have to sometimes just take a step back and say, what would I say to somebody else? And we give other people much better advice than we give ourselves. But if you take yourself out of the solution, it uh, does something to the emotion. It takes a lot of that emotion that clouds our judgment out of the situation and you can give somebody else much better advice. So to figure out how do you do that to yourself, just ask yourself, what would I say to a friend?
0: That That's so interesting. So this technique actually really has been told to me recently by my therapist. <laughs> and she, she has a couple of different ways of bringing it up, depending on how she, she gets into it. But uh, one thing she says is, if your daughter came to you with the same problem you're coming to me with, what would you tell your daughter? Yeah. And then suddenly the answer is obvious. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, without specific examples, like I would just know what I would tell my daughter without even thinking about it for a second. The other thing is, um, let's say I'm really good in business situations, but not as good in some other kinds of situations, let's say relationships or friends or whatever. My therapist would say, okay, what would you do if this was an investment decision you were trying to make? Or what would you do if a business colleague, if this was a business situation and you were negotiating a deal, how would you respond to someone treating you this way? And then suddenly the the answer becomes, so she would use an analogy. She would that where she would know I'm better at the analogy than the, the current situation and that would tend to work
1: yeah i think that's genius because it just helps you to put things in a different perspective right and you just need a little bit of shift sometimes in the way that you're thinking and ta-da the answer is right there
0: yeah so that uh that's very helpful so okay what's the what's the next
1: uh so then the next one was schedule time to worry but we already talked about that one um next one is uh determine if your friends are uh, if your feelings are a friend or an enemy so we mm. talk so much about emotional intelligence and that kind of a thing but then if you we're to say, well, how many emotions can you can you identify? Like sometimes when I work with people, I'll say, make a list of all the feeling words, you got 30 seconds, go. And they come up with like five words, right? <laughs> but yet we focus so much on emotional intelligence, yet we don't even have words to sometimes describe our feelings. And uh, we know that just labeling your emotions, if you say, I'm sad today, I'm anxious, that that can help. But then mm-hmm. you also need to figure out what are you going to do with that feeling? So then you say, is it a friend or an enemy? All right, I'm anxious. Well, is that helpful or not? It's helpful when it you look both ways before you cross the street, but it's harmful if it's like, hey, don't go for that promotion because you might get rejected. Or your anger could be helpful because it's driving you to make change, but it could be hurtful if you yell and swear and scream and say things you regret. Or even sadness—it's helpful when it helps you maybe honor something that you lost. But on the other hand, if you're so sad you can't get out of bed and you stay stuck there for three weeks, it's not helpful. So I think just label your emotions and figure out is this helpful or not, and that you're not stuck there. So many people seem to think if you wake up in a bad mood, you're just going to be in a bad mood all day. But you have some control over how you feel. And I get a lot of flack for that. People say you shouldn't control your emotions. I'm not saying you should be happy all the time, but you can certainly have some control over. You can calm yourself down when you're angry. You can cheer yourself up when you're sad. And you can regulate your feelings.
0: Or you could stay sad. Like like I could say, oh, I'm feeling kind of melancholy. I miss... So-and-so. It's okay to be melancholy. That's sometimes even a pleasant emotion. Like happiness is just one emotion among many. It's not the only pleasant emotion.
1: Right. And some people seem to think that, that if you're not happy, then there's something wrong with you. If you're not to this level of happiness that they think that you should be, then clearly there's something wrong with your life. But you should feel a wide variety of emotions and you won't even appreciate being happy unless you've been on the other end of the spectrum too.
0: Well, and you know, here's the question about labeling your emotions. It's almost like meditation. So- in, let's say, certain styles of Zen meditation, you sit there and you watch your thoughts as they're coming across your head. Uh, and, and, you know, most of the time we're just kind of swimming in the middle of our thoughts and not, not above the surface, but below the surface of them. And it's hard to kind of get that meditative state where you could, you know, if you're really angry, it's hard to sit, take a step back and say, oh, I'm feeling angry right now. Right. So is there any way to get better at labeling your emotions?
1: You know, I think it's about practice sometimes. And I work with a lot of people who just who just can't get there. So, all right, well, then let's just use a, a thermometer, 0 to 10. Just give me a number. How's your mood? A 4, an 8? Um, and But I think when people just get in the habit of maybe uh, you make it a habit, so on your way to work and then at, on, during your lunch break and after work, you just kind of check in and say, how's my emotions today? How am I feeling? And maybe you have some anxiety about something going on at home, but you carry that anxiety into the office. Well, wouldn't that be great to know when you get to work in the morning that you have some anxiety because that will affect your decisions.
0: But what if like so let's say you're dealing with a patient and they come back at you and say, listen, I think my husband is cheating on me. How am I going to think about anything else? Of course, I'm angry.
1: Well so then I think it would be a matter of saying you know are you angry are you anxious is there something else behind it maybe you're you're worried maybe you're embarrassed maybe there's a lot of other emotions but just identifying that and then come up with a plan what are you going to do about it right you could stay stuck in this uh, state of anger and in- and embarrassment or fear, but you could also then say, I'm going to bring my housing into therapy and we're going to talk about this or I'm going to do something or, you know, plenty of people who are suspicious of somebody else, you know, I'm going to investigate his cell phone (laughs) all day, every day, but whatever it is to know, what are you going to do about that emotion in that you don't have to stay stuck there, but maybe it's where you should be as well. Sometimes I have people come in and they say, gosh, I'm really angry. Um, Well, no wonder you're angry. And sometimes that just helps them like, oh, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be angry.
0: Yeah, I, I I like the I like the labeling a lot because that could e- you could even use that in discussions. So let's say you're having a heated discussion with somebody, being aware of uh, are they being is part of their is part of their words is because they're angry or sad or envious or. Did they—and then labeling even further. Did they just change the subject very slyly to a similar subject, but it's not the subject we started with? Like, getting used to labeling things, I think, could be very important.
1: I think so, too, and I think we don't. And In fact, you know, in our language, we—a lot of adults, people don't really talk about feelings. The last time somebody said, oh, gosh, I'm really sad outside of my therapy office, I don't know. People don't really walk around talking about their feelings, and I'm not suggesting that you have to, but— In our everyday conversations, you're more likely to hear people say stuff like, I had a lump in my throat or I get butterflies in my stomach. Just because we're not comfortable talking about feelings. We don't want to put a label on them and we don't like to admit them to ourselves. And so I think it's just important to make it a habit of saying, okay, how am I feeling? And check in with yourself.
0: You know, a lot of this is related to um, self-sabotage. So I used to never believe in this. Like, why would someone sabotage themselves? You know, whether in relationships or career or whatever. But I noticed over the years, let's say I have a big business deal happening and it's supposed to close in three months and I'm gonna get X amount of dollars once it closes. I'll suddenly start to self-sabotage. Like I'll get more and more anxious the, closest, the closer I'm getting to the three month point where the deal's gonna close. And I'll get so anxious, I'll even think of calling the other side and saying, look, if we close today, you could just, you all you have to do is give me half the money or whatever. And so that's that's sort of how I self sabotage myself, which is I get more and more anxious to as as I get closer to a positive outcome that through some insecurity I have, I feel I don't deserve. And so kind of labeling in those cases, plus the predictive ability uh, as well, helps. Like oh, I could think to myself, um, this is me being anxious and self sabotaging, and my prediction is probably wrong.
1: Right, and if we looked at our behavior, I mean, we get into certain patterns, and if we just labeled that to recognize, okay, I'm in this pattern, I self-sabotage, I do these certain things. When I'm feeling anxious, and you put a label on that, it just really helps us to become more aware of what we're doing, because I think so much of what we do in life is just a pattern, and we don't necessarily step back to recognize, what am I doing, and how do I get stuck in this pattern? Why do these things happen over and over again?
0: But if you're telling somebody this as a therapist, like, let's use the previous example, let's say the woman comes in and says... I'm so anxious and angry. I think my spouse is cheating on me and you say, uh, and she says, I think I should break up with him. I'm I'm so anxious and angry about, it. and you say, listen, the past 12 relationships you've had, you thought somebody was cheating on you and they weren't, uh, you know, why, why, why can't you take a step back and meta think about it in this way? and they still come back at you and say, no, 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 this time you you could see that they're not paying attention to you. They're not following your advice. They're still in that, that, that zone of anxiety, extreme anxiety. And they're not, and predict, you know, predicting bad. How do you, if you see that they're not really paying attention to you while you're giving them this good advice, what would you do?
1: Uh, So sometimes it's about uh, like emotions and logic, right? When people's emotions are through the roof, logic goes out the window. So it's about raising their logic. So it might be, let's, Write down, what's the evidence that he's cheating on you? Well, what's the evidence he's not cheating on you? Um, you know, what what would be the pros and cons of leaving? What's the pros and cons of staying? But to just in, to put it on paper sometimes helps. And so for people to to be able to see something, it's so, a, okay, I feel like he's cheating, but what's the evidence? Um, and when you look at it and you raise your logic, then the emotion usually balances out a little bit better.
0: Right, and then I guess also this measuring uh, comes in, like what happened in the past 10 times you had this worry about somebody or something?
1: right right and you know my job's often to point out inconsistencies between the way people see themselves versus what they what their behavior indicates so people will say gosh you know i'm i'm the most loyal partner in the world but and maybe they've cheated on somebody 10 times or just a matter of saying, okay, or, you know, this is the pattern that I'm noticing. What do you think? And I don't want to tell people what they're doing wrong or tell them how to change their life, but helping them to come to their own conclusions. And maybe you're ending every relationship because you're scared. What if this one actually works out or.
0: Right. Which is the self-sabotage part.
1: Right. Which I think, again, plenty of people do that. Um And so then it's a matter of just figuring out, is there another fear there? Is there something else going on? Um, and for people to help them come to hopefully come to their own conclusion about, that
0: so what's uh what's the next how, um, how else can I be mentally stronger
1: so the next one is engage in mood boosters so because people will say you know I, I have a bad day at work I come home I throw myself down on the couch and I watch tv all night and my life is just kind of passing me by uh and so you say well what makes you happy what do you like to do and sometimes you'll have trouble coming up with a list of well, what could you do differently and so um, if you want to feel better, then again, it goes back to doing something better. So uh, sometimes I have people come up with a list. What do you do when you're in a bad mood? I mean, they might say, I listen to, to sad music. I sit on the couch. I just watch TV. I stay home. And I say, well, what do you do when you're in a good mood? Well, I go for a walk. I call my friends. I go, go out to dinner. Um, I go out and do things. So we'll say, great. So now when you go home and you're in a bad mood, pick something off of this list, of a mood booster, instead of doing what keeps you stuck. Because we tend to stay in whatever state we're in, and you have to, again, just take that leap of faith. And so uh, it seems really simple, and it seems overly simplified, but people who will start doing that, they say, yeah, actually, that helps. You just pick something off of your what you do when you're happy list and do it even when you're not happy, and it can boost your mood.
0: I guess I don't know what I do when I want to be happy like, okay, so, so I'm asking you to put your therapist hat on now. How do I figure out what makes me happy? How do I figure out what my needs are?
1: Well, so then let's say on a, on a really good day, you, um, let's say you, you have the afternoon to do whatever you want and you're in a really good mood. What would you do?
0: I don't know. I hardly ever have like a free, (laughs) a free day. I really, I usually am either catering to, you know, some other, you know, usually most of the situations in my life are situations that I've chosen to put myself in. Like I enjoy doing this podcast and and so on. But in general, throughout the day, I'm usually doing things that are my responsibilities as opposed to, oh, I have a free day. I'm going to do something i have no idea what i would do
1: really so like, <laughs> or if
0: i had a free weekend i have i have nothing that i would choose to do
1: <laughs> like would you stay at home would you go somewhere or do you what do you yeah do?
0: maybe i would stay at home and and read i don't know
1: well what if you would that be the same what if you woke up and you were in a bad mood would you stay home and read or would you do something different
0: i don't i don't even know there
1: oh interesting
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of clueless about this particular internal map like because i'm always just okay it's i woke up i need to now work on a book or i need to do this or i need to do what this person wants me to do or this person wants me to do i don't really have my own you know needs and wants
1: do you have like leisure time activities that you enjoy outside of work related stuff
0: uh well so i do i do stand-up comedy here at night um, so sometimes I'll watch stand-up comedy to prepare, but now I've, in my mind, that's almost like a work thing. Now, um, I play chess, but often I find I'm playing the more chess I play. It means I'm anxious about something else. So I'm avoiding something else. So I'll play just mindless games of chess online, like over and over again. Uh, so I don't know. I, I never really have my own just by myself time.
1: Do you like being like that? Like, is that enjoyable to you? Or do you ever wish that you had time?
0: No, I think I, I think I wish I had time or I think I wish sometimes, like let's say in a, in a, in a good job, how much time do you think, like let's say 50% of the time you like what you're doing, 50% you don't. And that's like, like maybe any job. What's a good ratio of time you like what you're doing versus time you don't necessarily like what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I think 75 that you like and 25 that you don't would be really good because it would make you appreciate the 75%.
0: Yeah, so I think probably I have to figure out on my downtime how do I make that 75 25? I have to figure out what like do I like going to I like going to bookstores for instance, but you know there's only so much that you could go to a bookstore. I don't know, I have, to fi- I have to figure out my list of things that I like to do that are completely outside of work-related things. Because most of my work-related things are things that I love doing, so I don't really think about it that much. But like outside of work, I don't know what I like to do.
1: And that, that's easy to have happen, right? When you get into, if you're an author and you write and you do stuff, then it's, the world sort of blends together, right? Rather than having like Yeah, because you never leave the balance. job at home. Right. I mean, you
0: never leave the job at the office.
1: Right, right. And so I think that's a struggle a lot of us have is to figure out, you know, how do you do something and you know because even i don't know about you but even when i'm doing something I'm like, oh this could be a good story or this would be an article or i'm out there having fun doing something that you know there's always it always goes back to it could be work related
0: yeah and i feel i maybe i feel like i should this is why i asked you earlier like how many friends should one have because I, I don't know if i really like like most of my friends are are you know they're it's everybody's a legitimate friend i, I work with them So I kind of set up my life so that everybody I like, I work with.
1: Right. And
0: I don't have too many friends outside of that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, You know, that's why you said four or five friends. Uh, And I I don't know if I have that outside of work. Right. Probably have to work on that. And again, because I'm very bad at like responding to emails. Usually when someone sends me an email that's nice, that makes me more anxious about responding to it. And I don't know why
1: yeah i think um that's an interesting concept like does it are you uncomfortable with compliments in general? maybe yeah.
0: yeah yeah or maybe i don't know how to be equally nice back i don't know
1: <laughs> if right it's not
0: like business or, or if it's not like programmatic like hey can you do this on this day i could say yes but if it's like hey had such a fun time we should hang out some- i don't know i don't <laughs> i never respond
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> and then i feel bad
0: later like oh i didn't respond i should have but that's that.
1: Hmm. I'm gonna think about all of these things and see what I can come up with. <laughs> yeah.
0: So what's the what's the what's the next exercise that can make me stronger?
1: Uh, you know, so one is the the, t- the ten minute rule. If there's something you don't want to do, just tell yourself you're going to do it for ten minutes. And we find mm. that normally, if you start for ten minutes, then it's not that bad, and you choose to keep going. So when I work with somebody who says I don't want to go to the gym. Well, just tell yourself you're going to go for 10 minutes, and you can work out for 10 minutes, and then at the 10-minute mark, decide if you want to continue or not. Or when you have a boring project to start, just do it for 10 minutes. And you can talk yourself into doing it when you give yourself an out, but then once you start, usually you'll keep going and keep working on it. So sometimes that's a good way to get yourself to do something that you don't really want to do.
0: So so related to this, what do you think of to-do lists?
1: Um... You know, most people I know who have to-do lists, their list is so long and they can't complete everything on it and then they're stressed out because it just never, their list gets longer instead of shorter. So I think um, a to-do list work well when you uh, are looking at the things that you're actually going to do. And most people I know that have to-do lists, they have things that they want to do, things they wish they could do, things they feel like they should do, and then they feel guilty and anxious that they don't get to everything on the list.
0: And, and what do you think, and kind of a long-term version of this, what do you think about goals? Like, let's say it's the new year and you're going to say, okay, by the end of this year, I'm going to have these three things accomplished.
1: Well, we know most New Year's resolutions uh, don't make it past January 8th or, or the 18th, depending on which study you read. But So I think uh, it's good to, to be working on yourself and to have something that you're working toward, but I think it's not helpful when we set goals just because it's the new year or when we set goals because we think we have to. Or we set goals just because we think that that's sort of the in thing to do, but you don't actually have any intention if you're not motivated enough to follow through with it. And then people feel bad because they abandon their goals or they don't reach their goals, but it was only half-hearted attempt in the beginning anyway. Or people set goals on um, things that they can't control, like I want to get that job. Well, you can't control if they hire you. So a better goal is I'm going to do, re- I'm going to try my hardest when I go in for the interview. So if you set goals about things that you can control, and then you actually intend to meet them, then I think they can be healthy. But I see a lot of instances where people come up with goals and it actually becomes more problematic for their lives.
0: Like what's what's your daily so 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 given that it's sort of like process is, you know, today is more important than goals tomorrow. So what's like your daily process of improving yourself?
1: So when it comes to work, I in the morning I'll look at a okay, I'm gonna write two articles today or I'm gonna write so many pages in my book. So I always have some goal related to that and then the other things that are important to me is my health I love to exercise so I always make sure okay and then I'm going to go running at 2 in the afternoon or when I'm in Florida it's 7 o'clock at night Or, um, and then relationship goals. I want to spend time with the people I love. So I always make sure to build that into my schedule every day too. How
0: how many, how often a day do you spend time in your, on your relationships?
1: Uh, so my husband, Steve and I, we work together. So we're home together a lot, but not necessarily like spending time together. So we always make sure that we carve out part of the time of the day to just spend together and do something non-work related. And then, um... Family and friends, always try to make sure I see family and friends, whether I go to my niece's soccer game or spend time with a friend um, as many days out of the week as I can
0: and do you think do you think you're addicted to the dopamine hit of like, oh, another five star review on Amazon of one of my books or, you know, oh, more likes on my Instagram. Like, how do you deal with are, are you how do you deal? you know when you're when you're a writer, you kind of want to be, liked, but you also have to say something so unique that some people are not going to like you. There's this kind of dissonance. And so how do you how do you deal with that? Like how do you get your dopamine hits that oh people like me, but also make sure you're not caring too much what people think of you?
1: Uh, so uh, thankfully, I get a lot of emails from people that liked my book or they watch my text talk and they like that and, and they will send me nice emails and the nice emails greatly outweigh the negative emails. And then, if I'm going to read the comments on, say, my TEDx talk or the comments on um, maybe reviews of my book, I wait until I'm in the right mood <laughs> before I sit down and look at them. Because there's days that I just don't want to right. that I don't want to know, and other days where I'm kind of curious what do people say. So I don't. I don't. It's not something I check on every day or anything like that.
0: Let's say your next book came out and it just doesn't do as well. Like, how would you how would you deal with that? Would you feel like you know? What you were talking about before with the blue—would you have an exaggerated, you know, pessimism like, "Oh, that's it, that's it for my career as a writer"? Or would you, how would you put it in context?
1: Uh, well, for me personally, since I never planned to become a writer, I'm so grateful that I got this far. That if the next book bombed, I would be okay with that. <laughs> to say, "Wow, a kid from Maine who got to write three books, never intending to be an author," I'd still feel really, really good about that. And even if it ended my writing career, I'd be like, "Okay, that was an awesome adventure." But I think it's different for me, and I have a lot of friends. If they're they had a certain dream in life, and then it ends, I think that's different. This wasn't something I set out to do when I was, you know, seven years old or anything like that.
0: But now that you're in it, though, do you feel like has it changed? Like that's a great uh, way to look at it, and admirable. But now that you're fully in it, do you feel like oh, each book's got to be better than the next, or you don't you don't really feel that? Or here's another example. Let's say. You, you you see a conference and everybody who normally speaks at conferences with you was invited, but somehow you weren't invited. Do you feel a little upset?
1: Oh yeah, there's those moments where I think, gosh, how come I didn't? You know, I'm not in the cool kids club, or I didn't get to do that. Um, yeah, there's definitely those moments of thinking, gosh, why didn't I get picked? Um,
0: well, how do you respond?
1: Uh, I think it's a matter of, okay, well, then how do I feel about it? And then what does that mean to me? So if I didn't get picked, am I jumping to the conclusion of that means I'm not good enough, that I didn't try hard enough, that people don't like me? And to remember that all of those those thoughts aren't necessarily true. It's just I didn't get picked.
0: Yeah, and you just move on to the – you just keep writing. You just keep improving, and you move on to the next one.
1: Right, right, and being grateful for what I have.
0: I find someone once gave me the advice, and this was like 20 years ago, I was raising money for a company and it was hard. And someone gave me the advice that for things like that, if you just keep improving, it should be keep improving until it's easy. So don't try to push yourself when it's hard. That's when you know you have to back off and keep improving yourself until it's easy. So at some point, you just simply get invited to every conference, for instance, because you kept improving yourself and writing more and more, and your voice was more and more out there, and then now your name always comes up on the on the list when they're figuring out who to invite. I'm just using this specific example. So if it's not easy, even though to improve is difficult, if the goals aren't easy, it means you have to keep improving until the goals are easy.
1: Yeah, and I think, too, finding a balance between thinking I always have to be better, right? Like... If I, I always have to keep improving, improving, or building my business, or, or making more money, and then the point comes back to, well, do I really, or why? Or do I really want to speak at every conference? No, not really. And that it's okay, because I get emails from people all the time. They're like, you know how you should double your business, or you know what you should do? And I think, do I want to double my business? Like, I'm pretty happy with the way things are now. But to come to that point, sometimes it's uncomfortable, too, to say, well, am I just falling short of my goals? Am I selling myself shorter? Is it okay to say, I'm happy with where I am now.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because sometimes I'll want to be invited to a conference to speak, but then when it actually comes to like within a week or two of the conference, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. no, I have to actually go to this right, now. Right, right. And then I'm miserable. Right. So I've stopped basically, unless it's something really special, I've stopped saying yes to talks or conferences or anything. Um, all right, what What else? How else can I be stronger? I'm going to do all of these things.
1: Uh, so the number nine would be create a list of reasons why. So, for example, when I worked with somebody who said, you know, I want to go to the gym after work, but every day when I get out of work, I, I could turn right to go to the gym, but instead I turn left and I go home because I'm tired, I don't want to do it. So we said, well, what are the reasons you want to go to the gym? And he came up with a list, and we taped it to his steering wheel so that before he got in his car and turned it on, he was going to read that list. And it would just remind him, okay, it's good for me, it's healthy, it would uh, help my joints feel better, I could lose weight, and it would help him to remember to... Turn the car right instead of left. Or I worked with a woman who couldn't not answer the phone when her ex boyfriend called. She said, He's really bad for me, but when I see his number on the phone, I can't help it. I answer it. So we came up with a list of reasons why she shouldn't answer the phone. And so when she'd see his number, she said, "Uh, I'm at least going to read the list. I don't guarantee I won't pick up, but I'll at least read the list. And again, it was about balancing emotions and logic. So when she could raise her logic by reading that list, then it would help her not answer the phone.
0: At the very least, what happens then is, which I find to be valuable, is she puts a delay in before right. immediately answering. So now she has to call him back as opposed to answering the phone. Right. So, Which is a different activity. So, so I find when people I'm anxious about email me, I have a tendency to respond instantly. And uh, uh, instead now I, I try to say, okay, no, this is someone I'm, um, feeling anxious about whether they're toxic or not uh i needed to de- delay for a day yes <laughs> and then i try to do that on on purpose
1: yeah and i think that's great to just say i gotta think about that because for so many people if the default answer is yes to say great i'll get back to you about that without going going to the default and then you have to make a decision instead of just opting in
0: right but but the list and again this goes back to your your measuring things The uh all of this is sort of like people in general are not logical like i think it's you can't expect people to be logical. You could ex- you, really, you can expect people to be illogical almost all the time. But all of these things like measuring um, or, or making lists of why or diversifying options or you know figuring out consciously what is the list of things that make me happy versus the list of things that make me unhappy. These are all ways to sort of uh, almost force logic into the situation knowing that we're, we're in general
1: illogical. Right, right. And so I think a key to becoming better sometimes is just to, to try to raise your logic and writing things down, looking at it from a different perspective can influence your decisions and maybe take some of the emotion out of it and help you to make better choices.
0: Yeah, so so okay, number 10.
1: Uh, acting as if. So to say, okay, I don't feel confident, but I'm going to act as if I did. Or, uh, you know, I am i don't feel like, uh, like I'm happy today, but I'm going to act as if I were happy. And like we've talked about... Um, already is just changing your behavior first and changes in how you feel, changes how you think, how you see things.
0: So how, how, how can you how can you act as if you're more confident?
1: So then you say, well, what would a confident person do walking into this? Well, maybe they smile, maybe they shake hands, they look people in the eye, they say hello. Uh, they stand differently, they know how their shoulders hunched over, they stand up straight. Just a matter of saying, what would a confident person do? And then it's not about acting fake, but it's about saying, how do I bring my most confident self forward? Or if I were really confident about this, what might I be doing differently? And then do those things.
0: This is, this is um, you, know, you know, part of the reasons I love doing stand-up comedy is because it sort of forces all your neuroses. It kind of, it's almost like a laser beam of all your neuroses into one 15-minute period where you're on stage in front of a bunch of strangers trying to make them laugh. And right. so... Uh, you can't, whether you're feeling unconfident or not, you can't appear unconfident on stage because the audience will immediately know they're, they're an x-ray machine and they just simply won't laugh and you'll fail at that time. You have to always act that as, as my friends say, you always have to act as if the party is where you're at Yes. and then, and everyone else is just invited, even if you're not really feeling that way you have to act that way and it's hard it takes practice it does you have to act right so so you have to learn to be a good actor and i don't what i tend to do is i'll watch youtube videos of people who are confident or let's say you know successful comedians or successful speakers or whatever and i'll try to channel them a little bit to to feel that level of confidence
1: I think that's a great skill then, to say, okay, well, what does a confident comedian look like? How do I do that? Right. And then the feelings may come later, but to know that you'll do better when you act as if you were confident.
0: Like right before your TED talk, were you feeling, you were probably feeling nervous. Mm-hmm. And so how did you get rid of the nervousness?
1: Uh, you know, it was just a matter of telling myself, you know, this is all I can do is my best. This is my chance Just go out there and, and, uh, do your best and behind the scenes and Trying to say, okay, do I take deep breaths? Do I listen to music to pump myself up? But to know, here we are. This is my big moment. I'm going to make the best of it. And, um, you know, watching other people backstage, you know, some people are reading over their notes and and they're really nervous and other people are pacing back and forth. But for me, it was just a matter of taking a couple of deep breaths and saying, I'm going to go out there and do my best.
0: Well, what's another time when you've had to act as if,
1: um, I'm normally a shy person. So if I go to a event where, um, I need to mingle and talk to people, then I have to act as if I'm a more outgoing person than I might be comfortable with.
0: Yeah. It's so funny. I'm, I'm really shy as well. And when I go to like a party or an event where I have to interact with people, it's almost like I've created a persona for myself at this point where this is the persona I'm going to be at the party where I just go up to people, talk to them, be fearless and, and right. But it took a while to kind of develop that persona.
1: Right. And I think, though, once you do, then you realize, oh, I can do this. And it's not that I'm being fake. It's just that I'm putting that face forward and I can be like that, too. And and it serves me well.
0: I had to recently do an act as if in a very difficult situation. I was in a hospital and a relative, uh, I felt, was being bullied around by the doctors. And so I was going in to be uh, an advocate. And the doctors are really, they, you know, it's it's an almost an authoritarian institution where the doctors are the kings. And so when they say, well, this patient is X, Y, Z, you can't do that. And you have to kind of fight that. It's very hard because you're at the low end of the hierarchy and they're at the top of the hierarchy. So you have to totally act as if what you're saying needs to be listened to right. and even obeyed. And... um, it was funny cuz I it it was like so I dressed up in a suit actually and I was smiling but I was just very forceful on what I was saying and and I had to be very logical too and they all backed off it worked but somebody accused me afterwards that it was easy for me because I had white male privilege <laughs> and so I wonder if you know can you act as if if you don't have certain other benefits you know, like, you know, I was, de- I probably was using white male privilege to kind of get what I wanted and I dressed successfully right. and so on.
1: Yeah. I think, And, it, I, and
0: I look smart like because of glasses and curly hair. And,
1: right. Yeah. I think it does bring in a whole another layer of complications, right? For people that don't have certain privileges to say, well, it's easy for, for you to do that um, because of who you are, but then how do, how do I do that? Yeah, absolutely.
0: It's almost like you have to kind of craft a different type of persona depending on who you are
1: right right i think you know somebody who looked differently than you do may may not be able to pull that off quite as well right to be as convincing with the doctors so sure
0: so so i don't know what do you think so you know going back and forth on these 10 mental exercises that will make us stronger that will make anyone stronger where where do you think i need to improve
1: Well, <laughs> where, what, I'm gonna,
0: what, what should i do the most i'm
1: going to follow up with you to find out what your mood boosters are <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I should, I should measure. I should measure when I'm happy and when I'm, so using your your techniques, I should measure when I'm feeling happy and when I'm feeling a little sad, and I should see what I'm doing and see what percentage of the day I'm doing these things, and then I should probably try to have more downtime. I definitely feel like I, downtime re- re-energizes me.
1: Yeah, so scheduling some downtime and figuring out what makes you happy or what boosts your mood, absolutely.
0: How do you, um, when you and your husband argue, what do you do?
1: Um, like, how
0: do you de-escalate the argument? How do you resolve it? Uh, you know, I'm sure you guys communicate well. You've been through so much. Like, what's what do you think you've learned from your arguments with with your spouse?
1: He's, like, the calmest person on the planet. So he's one of those people, like... If I were to get worked up, he's so calm that, you know, then like if you were to uh, try to argue with somebody who doesn't argue back, it's not any fun. And so that definitely, Mm. you know, diffuses it right there. It's not fun to argue with him because he won't really argue back. Um, So I think it's just a matter now that I know that about him to that um, if we disagree on something, we just sit and have a a conversation about it. And I know that it won't turn into a heated debate or anything like that.
0: What if you disagree on something that you both view is important? Like, let's say... He wants to stay in Florida and not go back to Maine for for the, the summer, or you know. But you're like you you hate Florida in the summer, and you want to go to to Maine. What do? You, how do you resolve those?
1: Uh, you know, I guess compromise, give and take. We have a pretty um, pretty easy life. You know that we, we get to do this, we get to do that, and um, we get to have a lot of make a lot of decisions. So I think it's about it's talking about I need this, and what do you need, and how do we make sure that both of our needs are met, or. Does your hate for this outweigh my love for something? <laughs> and and
0: if it did, like let's say you wanted a dog and he didn't.
1: Right. Right. That's one of those things you can't really compromise on, right? You can't get a half of a dog or a dog yeah. half time. So like I guess then it would be about, you know, how is it going to impact your life? How would it impact my life? And just having conversations about that.
0: And have you guys decided to have kids or not?
1: So we were foster parents um, before. And I think... Um, before the whole book thing and that sort of a thing, because I'm never home enough now. But um, something that I think we'll go back to, and I'd love to um, to become a foster parent again and potentially adopt down the road.
0: And, and what if he said, absolutely not, that was just too much work uh, being a foster parent. I really want to just have my own life.
1: And, you know, I would accept that. He came into the relationship. I was a foster parent before he was there, and so he agreed to take it on, and we did for a while um but i could it wouldn't be a non-negotiable i'd be able to say okay if that's too much then if you're not all in that would be one of those things i wouldn't want to do
0: that's really admirable, being a foster parent actually it's a hard thing
1: it is it is a hard thing um but it was quite you know not to be cliche but it was rewarding for sure
0: so amy morin author of the great book 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and also 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, which I should reread right now, actually. Um, we've talked about so many things, uh, and I know you're coming back on the podcast soon because the next book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, is coming out in when? December? December
1: 31st.
0: December 31st. So I'm sure we're going to talk about that in the next few months. And it's always I always have so many takeaways and so many things to think about after you come on, and I'm, I'm so happy you're, you're a regular guest here.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me again. It's always a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Amy. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away.